You're listening to the Global Inclusion and Practice Podcast, sharing the stories of DEI changemakers around the world. Vivian Aqua and Marjolein Vlug bring you behind-the-scenes stories and kitchen table conversations about the personal perspectives of DEI professionals, representatives, advocates, and allies, talking about what matters in this work and what sustains us in creating lasting change. There are many of us working on creating a more inclusive world. Let's share our stories. We're in this together. Welcome, Dr. Marcia Goddard, to the Global Inclusion in Practice podcast. We are very excited to have you as our guest today. Could you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Because we're excited you're here, but they should be too. Why is that? Thank you. Well, I'm excited to be here as well. So my name is Marcia. I'm a neuroscientist and I specialize in, in brain behavior relationships and their impact on, on performance and on team dynamics and on culture. And I help organizations with challenges related to mental health and well-being, uh, DEI, mostly in high-performance environments. And all of those things, well-being, DEI, high-performance culture, they're all interconnected. They're not three separate things, which is a very important thing I want to share because they are treated as separate things. They're on different budgets, sometimes even different departments, but all of those things are interconnected. And that's what I work on. It's definitely a value add that the last part where people seem to think that you can separate all these three topics while they are related, interconnected, right? But I'm also curious about what is the one thing that you would like our listeners to know about you? One thing. I think. <laughs> Thank you. Thank one you. Thing. <laughs> Thank you for that warning. Right <laughs> okay, I'll take one thing. So, what yeah. I would really like listeners to know is that. I'm not your average neuroscientist. And what I really want to do is break stereotypes and show just not only how, how relevant neuroscience is for everything that we do, but also that you don't have to be boring, old, and gray to be a neuroscientist. You could be young and fun and engaging. And very relevant. I feel like there's a little stinge into, I need to dive a little deeper into what you are sharing because is that how neuroscience is being portrayed at the moment? Yeah. I mean, if you look at, well, not just neuroscience, I think science in general, when you think mm -hmm. of a scientist, people think of an old guy with gray hair and a beard and a white lab coat. And I, I understand that. I mean, literally, I have those same biases. For me, mm -hmm. when I look at myself, I also don't see a neuroscientist, even though I've been one for over a decade. So I think those biases are very persistent and also, science is boring is a bias that's very persistent, but it is so relevant for everything that we do. So, yeah, it's definitely something that I'm very passionate about. And I do a lot of keynote speaking. And my main aim when I do those things is to really show people the value of understanding your brain, as well as the fun of engaging in science. And it helps to be, let's say, an engaging and interesting speaker as well. I try. I do my best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. And is it also showing someone on stage talking about science who is not a middle-aged white man? Absolutely. I mean, there is a huge shortage of, of female people in STEM in general. Mm -hmm. Neuroscience is not completely STEM. It's somewhere in between, they always say. But from my perspective, science in general is a male-dominated world, a white male-dominated world, and I am a woman of color. So being there, coming from a background where going to university wasn't, wasn't a given, 
I really want to show people that you can be like me, you can have my background, you can look the way I look and still be a scientist. And I hope that if we turn science, if we turn turn it into more of a mirror than a window, that's mm. what they always say, like it needs to be yeah. a mirror and not a window, then I hope that more young women will choose a career in science. What made you connect science and neuroscience to DEI work and the DEI work that you do now? But what made me connect the neuroscience to it? So for me, the brain is where it all starts, right? And when you look at DEI work, a lot of it is about behavior change. It's about changing your perspective. It's about challenging your own biases. It's about self-reflection. And all of those things are easier if you understand why they're so difficult. And they are so difficult because of the way our brain operates. Our brain wants to keep us safe. So our brain wants to keep things the way they are always. And if you start to understand that, it makes it easier to reflect and understand why you're feeling the way you're feeling, because it is very uncomfortable. And hopefully that will help to facilitate the change that is needed. I love everything what you are sharing. And yeah, I'm biased regarding to that, because this is exactly the core of the work that we do in DEI. But there's also a lot of myth around the work that we do. So what is a common myth about what you do in your role, in your job? The most persistent one is that I can fix your problems. I can't. I can't, but I can help you fix your problems. So it's, I, when I do DI assignments, sometimes I'm brought in, and, okay, so this is our problem. What are you going to do? And I'm like, what are you going to do is a better conversation to have here. And I think that one I, probably goes for every consultant out there who struggles with this. You're brought in to fix problems, but the problems aren't always fixable or the metrics that they're using aren't the right ones. So yeah, for me, the myth that I can fix a company's problems without their help is a very, very tricky one to navigate. Yeah, we just said earlier, you know, you can make it easier for people to yeah. work on their own. I'm not even saying solve, to work on their own problems. Yeah. But making it easier to see why it's difficult. Yeah, but they have to do it themselves. There has to be an intrinsic motivation there. And mm-hmm. I think combined with the fact that that sometimes people think I can fix their problem is that they themselves tend to have a lack of really intrinsic motivation to change, which again is understandable, but that makes it a very big challenge. Yeah. And also the accountability part, right? Yeah. Owning yeah. up to what is wrong or what is right so that you can yeah. change that. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with this challenge? Well, I'm very honest. I think the the reason I chose a career as the reason I started my own business Mm -hmm. was because I don't deal very well with office politics. So Mm -hmm. I don't deal very well with not being able to be honest and not being able to say, hey, what you're saying right now, that's just not going to work. So I think I deal with it by being brutally honest about what I can do, what they have to do and what is necessary in order to make it work. And then I'm in right now, I'm lucky enough to be, well, I worked hard for it, but I'm lucky enough to be in a position where if they don't want to do it, I say bye and I go, I just don't do it. I'm not going to put myself in a position where I'm setting everyone, including myself up to fail. So I deal with it by taking that step back. I dealt with it by becoming an external person coming in to help instead of being the internal person trying to solve it. What does that make easier? To walk away, (laughs) to be honest. Yeah, it makes it easier to just walk away because when you're in it, you're part of it. You're part of the dynamics. You're part of the culture. And 
that has its benefits. I was just about to say, it's not all grim, right? (laughs) No, 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 absolutely, absolutely not. It has its benefits to be, and maybe in the future, I mean, I have this vision of maybe someday I want to be a chief diversity officer somewhere to really get it right. And to really- Who are listening, Marsha is available in the future. (laughs) (laughs) At some point in the future. (laughs) Some point, some point. We're not there by a long shot. But so maybe, yes, in the future, maybe once I've learned more about, you know, how boardrooms operate and how you can navigate that I might want to do it but I forgot the question so oh yeah there were benefits to being in there yeah so there are because if your your impact can be exponentially bigger if you're in an organization for the long haul when you're an external person it's also sometimes you're brought in and then it's like okay check we're done goodbye and and that obviously that is sometimes difficult to deal with so yes there are benefits to being internal but right now at this point in my life in my career I feel like I I can help them to figure out where it hurts and I can help them solve it if they want to, but I have the freedom to step away if I, I think it's not, they're not ready for it. Yeah. I have yeah. a question that is popping on my mind. For looking back, what kind of question would you have asked when you are engaging or looking for a job or you've been approached by somebody that wants you? What are the questions that people should ask as a chief diversity officer, as a diversity professional? What question would you would like to have an answer to? Sorry, what, you, what question would I ask them or what should they ask me? Um, no, what, you ask them. Before you take the job, you mean? Yeah. yeah. Ah, okay. What's my budget? <laughs> <laughs> okay, be, 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 share more context because the budget yeah. is... is <laughs> It's not mm-hmm. enough, right? so the reason. And I love how fast that answer came. <laughs> yeah, the reason that would be my first question is because it's it tells you a lot about how mm-hmm. dedicated they are to what yeah. they're doing. If yeah. it's like, yeah, you have all the freedom in the world and you can do whatever you want, and we have great employee resource groups, which are fantastic. I love employee resource groups and I love working with them. But if the budget is zero or marginal compared to everything else, then I know that they're that they're not taking it seriously. And also, who am I reporting to? I think chief diversity officer should report to the CEO. Yeah. Hi, I'm Vivian Aqua, the certified DEI consultant, and I would like to invite you to take your organization to the next level of understanding by collaborating with me. I specialize in helping organizations amplify their DEI initiatives and foster an inclusive environment. Reach out today to learn how I can help your organization unleash its hidden potential and create a culture of belonging. Love it. When you put yourself two years ahead of now, so 2025 in the future. Uh, Yeah. What decisions would you make today, knowing where you want to be? Well, my third career, because this is my third career, has been mm-hmm. one big string of unexpected experiences. So mm-hmm. I've, I've kind of stopped looking ahead too much or planning ahead too much because things just seem to happen to me and, and in a very, very good way. But if I were to try to do that, then I think the decision that I would make today would be to follow my heart. And that's related to what I just said, because if you had told me two years ago that this is where I would be today, I would not mm-hmm. have believed you. 
And it's actually the same thing for the two years before that and the two years before that. And, Which and part what, would you not have believed? Everything. Yeah. <laughs> Every <laughs> single thing. And all of the, what all of those years have in common is that ever since I left academia, I had a job as an assistant professor and I was deeply unhappy and I decided to leave when everyone said there's no role for you in the business world. There just isn't. You're not, you don't have the right type of education, the right type of experience. Ever since I left academia, I've been following my heart when it comes to making career-related decisions. So I think my decision is to continue doing that, to do what mm -hmm. feels right while being responsible. Of course, I have a family. I need to be responsible. So I'm relatively conservative when it comes to making like a big leap. There needs to be some soft landing insight. But I do follow my heart. And I think I need to continue doing that because it has brought me so many amazing things. Too many amazing things. I cannot share. <laughs> but let's say that, and I'll, I'll bring it up for those who, of you who are not following Marsha yet. Marsha has a heart that is full with Formula One. Yes. And the things ever since knowing about her and also connecting with her one-on-one, -on -one, the things that I have seen, which she has spoken into existence, it has been, and of course, hard work. There are some great things coming in the future. There are this year already, so year, I cannot yeah. disclose it, but I want you to know that whoever is curious or interested in learning more about what Masha did, wait and see. Yes. This all sounds very woo-woo. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like everyone can follow Marsha. On yeah, exactly. definitely. If you want to find out, then definitely follow my LinkedIn because that's where I, that's my main channel of communication. Yeah. And I do, I write a lot about Formula One, but yeah. It, Just I've been a Formula One fan since I was a little kid. And like you say, Vivian, I kind of, I do feel like I spoke it into existence that I now get to do stuff related to Formula One in my work. And that is amazing. And that all came from following my heart and not listening to everybody who said that's impossible. What else would you like to speak into existence for the coming <laughs> For us as well. Longer, you know, <laughs> You were surprised by things. What would you like to be surprised about in the future? Mm, I know. <laughs> But what would I like to be surprised about? Yeah. Ooh. This is a really difficult question. Like I said, I don't plan ahead too much. So I think maybe, maybe. I'm not going to, I'm not going to destroy you if you get it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> But I think maybe looking, looking at my career, like, and not just my career, but the work that I'm doing, I think I would like to be surprised by the massive shift that I hope to be seeing in boardrooms all over the world when it comes to the topic of DEI, that people start to understand culture and DEI and well-being are all connected. We need to all get together, work on it together. We need to put budget towards all of those things, and we need to change our mindsets. I would love to be surprised by people who are in power in terms of their intrinsic motivation to really make a difference. Because I think if we can really work together with them more intensely, instead of them saying, you do it for me, then I think the results can be amazing and the world can really be a better place. In case you didn't know, I'm a left-leaning tree hugger. So this is just what I, I just want to make the world a better place. And you, the volume and the energy that yeah. sent that out there, it's <laughs> out there now. It's yeah. out there. Yeah. yeah. And I'll add one more. Lewis mm -hmm. Hamilton, if you're listening, Marsha <laughs> wants to interview you. <laughs> no, well, actually, Marsha would like to work for you. 
Yeah, Marsha would really like to contribute to Mission 44, which is his charity, which, which yeah. he is actually trying to make the world a better place, trying yeah. to create opportunities for people from underrepresented groups. Lewis is putting his money where his mouth is, his reputation where his mouth is. He's really doing amazing things. So, yeah, I mean, interviewing him would be a treat, but I would really like to contribute to the work that he's doing because it's amazing. Well, anyone who's listening to this who knows Lewis Hamilton or who knows someone who knows Lewis Hamilton, forward <laughs> this. And uh, tell them the timestamp. We might give them the timestamp, but you want to listen to the whole episode anyway. Forward it, please. I appreciate that. Thank you, guys. Yeah. <laughs> what has been the biggest surprise so far that you've seen while you were doing your work? Maybe in your personal life, if that's the first one that shows up. <laughs> No, I, I think I, I, there, there have been related to what I said, what I hope my biggest surprise will be. What I have seen, what I have been surprised about is how little things can have a big impact in your work. How just saying, I understand that that must be difficult for you. Just saying those words can lead to major breakthroughs. And, and not just I'm not just talking about the underrepresented groups. I'm also talking about the dominant group, which still is men. It can make them feel heard about feeling threatened in the current climate, which is something that it's a fact of life. The world is changing. It's changing, but it's changing for them as well. So just saying, I understand that that must be difficult for you can lead to having an open conversation, a really, truly honest, open conversation about, what, about what's going on on both sides of this debate, I would almost call it conversation. Let's call it a conversation. And Having open conversations is one of the components of psychological safety. And I think the importance of that cannot be overstated. So I've seen really big impact by just showing that empathy, showing that understanding from both sides, and then amazing things can happen. Yeah. yeah. Showing that openness to connection, you know, maybe it's not a small thing. Maybe it's a small thing in sense of how much time it costs to say it. Yeah. But it's yeah. not a small thing at all. No, but also it's just a sentence. Yeah, but also realizing it takes two to tango, right? And yeah. most of the time, you know, the thing that you shared about most of the time, it's focused on the underrepresented group. Yeah. And what about the rest is 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 very good. I don't want to activate a whataboutism here on this <laughs> podcast. It's more about we need all parties to elevate the conversation and to celebrate yeah. inclusion. Yeah, exactly. And and I do want to I do want to emphasize. I don't mean that. We should pretend like there's not a problem and white men yeah. have it so difficult in the world. I, I don't think that is the case. But I do think that from their perspective, we need to be able to take their perspective yeah. as well. And for, from their perspective, it's like everything around me is changing right now. And all of a sudden, it's all about how I'm not doing things right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I truly understand that that must be difficult for them. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't change, but it does mean that we need to have empathy for both sides of that conversation. Yeah, their whole worldview is upside down. Yeah. yeah, that's that's yeah. a big thing for it. Hey, are you ready to rediscover focus, clarity and resilience so that you can be a stronger change maker for diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging? I am Marie Langfleur. I'm a certified coach. And whether you're getting started in DEI or are further along in your journey, I can support you to take your work to the next level. With me as your ally, you can gain clarity on your next initiatives or career goals, make intentional choices, stay accountable to them, deal with the intensity of the work and create real change. Let's talk. I'd love to learn more about you. Reach out, book a chat.
What is something that our listeners may not know or expect? Well, you just gave that away, Vivian. <laughs> I mean, if now they know, what else don't they know? <laughs> if they've ever visited my LinkedIn or if they've listened to the other previous part of this podcast, then now they know. But I sincerely, truly know everything there is to know about Formula One. Everything. And what it, is it, something you know about Formula One that we don't know? Yeah. Well, I don't know. know because I don't know what you know. About <laughs> I know <one>. nothing. <laughs> I've seen pictures of Lewis Hamilton. <laughs> You've seen pictures of Lewis Hamilton. Well, that's a good start. He's a very important person in, in <laughs> Formula One. I mean, culture in Formula One is one of the determining factors of success. And people tend to think that it's about the driver and the best driver or the best car. Well, a lot of people tend to think it's about the best car. But it is the combination of having the best car, the best driver and the best culture. The behavioral element of success in Formula One is massive because it's not just the driver. These, these factories have about 1,500 to 2,000 people working on that car every single year. So they're large corporates. They're seriously large organizations. So their culture is really fascinating. And there's so much that we can learn about how, well, not about how to be diverse and inclusive because they're struggling with that themselves, obviously. But when it comes to creating a sustainable high-performance culture where people don't burn out, but actually are very motivated and engaged, there's a treasure trove of information there. So yeah, like I said, it doesn't matter what the topic of conversation is. I can always bring Formula One into it. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what can you bring into, you know, what can people learn about DEI work from this example, from that combination of culture? Yeah, I think... What, what we can learn from it is that DEI is not about the color of your skin and it's not about your gender. It is about alternative perspectives and any environment that wants to be able to deal with change. And that's one thing that I did learn from culture in Formula One. It is incredibly innovative. Innovation is like at the top of the list there. So you need to be able to be open to alternative perspectives and doubt your own decisions in order to be better. So I think when it comes to high performance and high performance culture, the main thing is that openness to alternative perspective is at the base of, is at, at the foundation of inclusion as well. So inclusive environments become high performance environments because there is room to disagree, which means there is room to innovate and try new things. There's room to look at things from different perspectives. Yes, exactly. There's this really funny example that I spent a number of years interviewing people on Formula One teams uh, to learn more about how their culture is built and how it, how it operates. And there was one engineer who, who told me uh, the story that he had to hire someone for his team and he wanted to, he wanted to hire someone different. And usually like you go to, you do motorsports engineering, a master's degree at Oxford or Cambridge, and then you do like your, your graduate internship at one of the teams. And that's how you get into Formula One. But he mm -hmm. decided to hire someone who had a background in, I think it was designing lawnmowers, which is not related to Formula One. But he did that because that person brought in a different perspective instead of everybody thinking if everyone goes to the same college, does the same thing and has the same experiences, they all think mm -hmm. the same way. And he was like, no, if I bring in someone who has a completely different background, that's going to help me to solve problems on the car in a way that is different from the way we did it before, which might be better. So to me, that's what inclusion is about. It's about bringing in the, and diversity. It's bringing out those different perspectives, opening up to them, listening to them, giving them a voice so that you can become better as a team. Is this something that gives you energy in your work days 
to see these examples, to see that people do things differently, bringing in new perspectives. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I love it when a problem is solved in a way that nobody expected it to be solved. I, I love when that happens. And that's why my heart is really in it. And I, I am a woman of color, so I fully understand the societal impact of it as well. I don't, I don't deny that. But my main drive for doing this is because I think it will make organizations better. It's not just doing the right thing and make the world. No, it's also because your organization will become better for it. Yeah. And eventually also with the new generation stepping up, realizing that they already know that diversity is in it for them. Mm-hmm. Whilst we're dealing with generations where we, I wouldn't say have to convince, but have to showcase to them what the business case is and how to win, where the younger generation is just like, I need to include different people. That's it. That's how I know. And that's how I went to school. And I want to, I want to also continue that in the workplace when they are asking the challenging questions during their interview, right? How does your diversity perspective look like? What have you done? What are you doing? And companies not being able to answer them. Yeah. It's, it's a shame. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a change. Yeah. Filtering through. The world is changing. So generations yeah. are bringing in, they have new perspectives because the world looks very different for them yeah. than it did for our parents and it did for yeah. us. So it is changing. And I hope that with that change, with that new perspective, come, also comes a change in the way that we work together. That, From my perspective, that would be a very, very good thing. Yeah. I have like a gazillion questions to ask, but then again, we also have to close uh, <laughs> the podcast, right? Bring in so- one more. <laughs> One more? Mm-hmm. What do you have to ask then, Marjolein? Do you want to ask? Shall I? You go. Well, this is, this is a, a question that is close to my heart because I'm, I'm a huge reader, especially for stories. Not just reading, but also watching. So movies, uh, books. If you're watching snippets of this, there's a huge bookcase in the background. <laughs> yeah. What stories would you recommend for us and our listeners to to read or to listen to or to watch? That's a good one. So let's start with the big one. Vivian, Vivian knows which one I'm going to mention now. Lewis <laughs> Hamilton's autobiography. No, 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 no. Although he's fantastic. So I, I, did, I don't even know if there is a biography, but absolutely would love to read it. But no, that's not the one that I was going to mention. Um, the one that I'm going to mention is a book called Behave by a man called Robert Sapolsky. Robert Sapolsky is a neurobiologist and he, he, he's just, to me, he's an absolute rock star because the way that he explains very difficult neurobiological theory and neurobiological concepts with really concrete examples of this is what happens in your brain. And this is how that translates to behavior. is just unparalleled. He is the best science communicator that I've ever seen. And he's written a book called behave. It is a big book. Vivian has repeatedly mentioned to me that the audio version is 27 hours. So it'll take you a while to get through it, but it is so informative and it is so engaging. The letters are very small, but it is a lot of fun to read. And it's about the relationship between what happens in your brain and how that translates to behavior. So for me as a neuroscientist with that type of expertise, that's really fascinating. So that's a book that I would definitely recommend if you're interested in this topic. And then there's a movie and the movie is called The Best of Enemies. And it's a true story about a civil rights activist, Anne Atwater. Her name was Anne Atwater. And she had to, she was kind of forced to, to have 
really deep conversations with a Ku Klux Klan leader, and they were enemies at that time, but it was about the desegregation of schools. That was something that was happening at the time. And someone came in to facilitate the conversation about it between these two. They're like polar opposites in terms of the political spectrum. And the person who they brought in used Socratic questioning to facilitate the conversation. And I do that too in in my work. If I have to facilitate just challenging emotional topics, I use Socratic questioning. So those are why, what, how questions that you ask in a neutral way without a judgment being in the question itself. And these two people became friends. They became friends over time because they were forced to have an actual real conversation with each other. And that created empathy and that created understanding. So to me, that's a really amazing story of what can happen if we're just able to challenge our own biases and sit down and have a real conversation. And connect. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, a lot can happen when you participate in a conversation where you are actively listening, but also can mm -hmm. feel what it means to be someone else and yeah. what the challenges people are have, yeah. right? Instead of exactly. putting a wall and say, it doesn't apply to me, so I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to take care of this. Yeah, yeah. It's even sometimes it's even worse. Sometimes it's this doesn't apply to me, so it's not true. Yeah. And yeah. that's, I, I blame Twitter. I do, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm only half joking because Twitter has a character limit, yeah. which by definition means that you're not able to explain yourself. You're not able to explain context. You're only, you're only able to give like these little snippets of your opinion, which polarizes mm. people. So social media and specifically Twitter, I think are not yeah. a very good way to have any sort of conversation with anybody. True, true. But luckily Twitter has audio now and there are different ways to communicate. I do believe in sometimes not using a platform to have a conversation, especially a conversation that is this delicate. Yeah, yeah. That should be a one-on-one -on -one conversation or should be a phone call or should be handled in a in an online virtual meeting where you are seeing each other and having that heart-to-heart -heart conversation. Yeah. I mean, preferably it's in-person, face-to-face in yeah. the same room so that you have as much non-verbal communication at your disposal as possible. Yeah. But yeah, obviously there are different ways to do it virtually as well. I'm very much in favor of that too, because it can connect people who are very distant from each other. Yeah. But Twitter is, from my perspective, not the right way to do it. No. Yeah, it's about connecting yeah. and getting that context. Yeah, And exactly. how we manage to do that, to do that, that's so conducive. Well, we heard it all. <laughs> when you are interested in learning more about Marsha, uh, finding out, you know, all the nitty-bitty about Formula One or want to know more of what she's up to, connect with her on LinkedIn. Do not connect with her on Twitter. As you see, she has a lot of love for Twitter, right? So <laughs> connect with her on LinkedIn and yes. reach out to her, say that you listen to the podcast and also share the podcast as well. Yeah. Thank you, Marsha. Thank you for having me, guys. I loved it. Thank you. So did we. Thank you for listening. You're warmly invited to pause for a moment and think about what stood out to you from this conversation. Please share this episode with others to inspire them too. Make sure to subscribe to our Substack channel. We'll be back soon with more episodes. Be well, take care, and stay connected.